welcome to Scratching the Surface. On last week's episode, I had a wonderful and wide-ranging conversation with Michael McCoy, the longtime co-director of Cranbrook's design program. Longtime listeners of the show know I've had a long fascination with that institution and specifically with that design program. I've had many former students on the show and even wrote an essay about it for AIGA's Ion Design two years ago. During the McCoy's tenure, Michael focused largely on the industrial design side of the department and his wife, Catherine, led what we now think of as the pioneering graphic design program. So continuing from last week's conversation, I am excited to share this conversation with Kathy that looks at the development of the graphic design curriculum within Cranbrook's design department. Catherine McCoy originally studied interior design and industrial design before getting a job at Unimark, the famed design studio led by Massimo Vignelli right out of school. At 25, she and Mike took over as the co-artist-in-residences at the design department at Cranbrook, and it was under her leadership that graphic design truly became an area of study in the design program and became a leader in developing design theory, postmodernism, deconstruction, and formal invention. In this conversation, we talk about all of that. I was really curious to hear how Kathy learned to teach in a program that famously had no classes and no grades, especially when in those early years, she was often the same age as her students. We talk about the state of graphic design and how she thought about creating a community that was comfortable with challenging the status quo. And we talk about the influence that that program had beyond the walls of Cranbrook. If you are at all interested in graphic design history, in graphic design pedagogy, in graphic design theory, this conversation looks at how our modern understanding of these fields really began. I am so honored to have had the chance to speak to both Mike and Kathy and learn more about this truly pivotal moment in design history. This show is funded by Patreon supporters. So if you like what we're doing here on Scratching the Surface, I hope you consider supporting us on Patreon for just a few bucks a month. Members get full transcripts of every episode. We do bonus interviews and other exclusive content each month. We're about to launch some exciting new projects and the Patreon supporters are the first people to see these and to give feedback on those. So you can visit us at patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the information and to sign up. We really, truly couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much for listening. And here is my really wonderful conversation with the great Catherine McCoy. As I was thinking about talking to you, I returned to the book that, that you and Mike published on your time at Cranbrook, uh, Cranbrook designed the new discourse. And I want to begin by reading two quotes from that book in the essay that you both wrote and sort of ask, I'm curious how you sort of think about these ideas today. And so you write, much of the work done at Cranbrook has been dedicated to changing the status quo. It is polemical, calculated to ruffle designers' feathers, and it has done that. And then a little bit later you write, 
The profession of design in the 1970s had fallen into a state of stasis that was suffocating. The new generation of students, some of them now working in their own successful studios, has challenged the sterility of universal design and is emerging with highly personal interpretations. And I I loved both of those because I think that really speaks to the myth and the legend and the narrative around the Cranbrook Design Department, and especially the Cranbrook Design Department, as you and Mike led it. But what struck me reading that today is when I think about the profession of design in the 1970s has fallen to a state of stasis that was suffocating, I almost wonder if we're in a state like that today, especially in graphic design. And and it's not modernist anymore. It's not the sort of universal design, but it is design thinking. It is user experience. All of these things are creating a certain sort of stasis, a certain sameness. Um, do, Do you feel that also from your position with this sort of history? What's your sort of view on the state of graphic design today and where that sort of uh, challenging of the status quo is happening? I have to say, I'm really not sure what the state of graphic design <laughs> is today. It seems very disperse. Mm-hmm. Um, on one hand, you know, technology is just moving so fast yeah. and creating a lot of um opportunities for change and people are doing a lot of experimentation but at the same time it's there seems to be maybe a lack of focus it's uh but but we need to remember that the the design fields go through cycles right Mm -hmm. and so i'm not quite sure where we are in the cycle right now but to go back to the the idea of the 1970s um you know, design had made some progress at that point. And I see, especially in graphic design, um, you know, it kind of came out of a very unformed state. You know, in a way, it was the last of the design fields to professionalize, yeah. define itself and discover its its history and methodologies. And um, so modernism arrives, Swiss graphic design in particular, in the late 60s and early 70s. So then, you know, it got absorbed into the mainstream practice pretty fast. So by the middle 70s, you know, it was became very corporate. Corporations right. <laughs> discovered that modern graphic design, modernism in graphic design, worked really well for corporate right. communication. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's... It, where, whereas in the late sort of mid to late 60s at Unimark, we had to fight to use sans serifs, you know, universe. Uh, right, right. Where by the mid 70s, you had to fight not to use those. Right. Um, you know, modernism, the language of graphic language of modernism became the sort of official corporate style. So that that quote was that that statement in the essay was sort of about that dynamic, you know, and then we went through a cycle of shaking things up and then that, and then pretty soon we saw (laughs) firms asking for, um, for employees that were, you know, competent in that Cranbrook. Well, okay. We'll get to that. We'll get to, I want to come back to that, but let, let's talk about, let's stay in the sort of sixties and seventies for a second. I asked this question to Mike also, and I'm, I'm curious about 
sort of your own design education as somebody who had such a big influence on design and especially in the context of the 70s like we're just talking about and what you were just saying about sort of graphic design's sort of late (laughs) maturation as as a design field because you were a you were a student right in there and you began studying interior design and then switched to industrial design and then went on to teach primarily graphic design Tell me about that early education. How did that shape a lot of the work you would go on to do? Well, for as a high school student, you know, gravitating towards design, I, I kind of became aware that I was not an artist, you know, taking mm-hmm. art in high school. Um, and that actually, you know, my high school art teacher just said, you're not an artist, you're a designer, look into design and pointed me in some direction. That would have saved a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I was really drawn, actually, from middle school on to um, architecture. But all I knew of architecture were the home magazines, you know, House Beautiful uh-huh. and Garden. And I started drawing floor plans in middle mm. high on my notebook pages during class. Um, and we were um, the same. We were the same middle school, middle school students 50 years apart. <laughs> I was doing this. I was doing the exact same thing. Interesting. And so, um, you know, I, I told the high school counselor that I wanted to be an architect. And you may have read this. I, I told people, I've complained about this before. Yes. And this herringbone jacket guy, uh, that's all I remember of him, told me the girls weren't architects and I should be an interior decorator. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and, you know, I, I, but he had no advice of what schools to go to. He certainly didn't say, you know, you should go to Art Center or Pratt, who, which were the two leading schools at that point. Um, and I just trotted off to the, you know, nearby State University because they listed interior design in the catalog. And it never occurred to me that one school would be better than another. Um, and uh, when I got there, it turned out that interior design actually was only offered as special problems in the art department. The The real interior design major was in home ec, and that mm. was, you know, um, decorating, basically. Right. To, so you could sell furniture in department stores when you graduated. Um, so industrial design was you know, sort of the op- option, you know, the alternative there, and as well as graphic design. But I really didn't, I mean, I hadn't even heard the term graphic design then. And actually in 1963, when I landed in college, I, you know, that term wasn't used very much. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> at Yale, that was probably the only program using that term at that point, you know, maybe Kansas City Art Institute, mm-hmm. um, a, a few schools. And um, so, well, okay, I'll go into industrial design. And um, actually, I'm glad I did. Um, because I think I got a slightly more conceptual uh, framework uh, and foundation in industrial design than I would have in any graphic design program in the country at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, George Nelson problem solving, you know, mm-hmm. and there was Henry Dreyfus human factors and ergonom- rudimentary ergonomics at that point. Um, and so... I think I got a little more conceptual foundation in industrial design, but I'm not a very three-dimensional talent. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty two-dimensional, and um, and 
I, I got to, you know, I was allowed by the one good professor we had to do some interior design projects, but, you know, he really wasn't prepared to, you know, teach or critique interior design. Um, so, you know, it was more of a conceptual foundation than a, than a formal one. But I also took one course in uh, graphic design in the, in the art department, and that was okay. so so lame <laughs> i didn't think anymore why but, why why was it lame what did you do in that class oh it was jackson pollock's brother who was teaching it and okay. it 10 weeks of chancery italic calligraphy uh, and, yeah. and um uh, you know state university programs were in design as you are probably well aware uh were very unformed um Mm -hmm. through the 50s 60s um it's only really in more recent years especially with the nasd accreditation standards developed with aiga that we have really begun to define what a graphic design foundational education would be um so it just didn't seem worth spending any more time in that program. Um, But meanwhile, as I went through industrial design, I fell in love with typography and, Mm. and um, corporate trademarks. And, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. found a couple of books in the bookstore, just little studio Vista um, British books on, on um, graphic design. And I, and I really then became kind of convinced that that was, my true love. Although I've always been interested in the idea of cross-disciplinary design, you know, and exhibitions, interiors, yeah. you know, products, it all seems related. Yeah. I mean, and it seems, and that's sort of why I asked that because it seems like that interest was there from the beginning. And the fact that you sort of waffle, you know, you had this interest in architecture, you sort of found yourself in interior design slash decorating industrial design while interested in typography that sort of interdisciplinary multidisciplinary seems like that was there from the beginning did you so did you was unimark your first job after you graduated yeah um i think i'd read about it in industrial design magazine you know my last semester in school and then you know graduated mike and i got married we're living in the suburbs of detroit and i'm looking for my first job with a pretty um unformed portfolio um, from this rather rudimentary program. It's, and my friend that was working at a, a good design firm in Detroit had gone to Pratt. And I was like, oh, I guess I made a mistake in my schools, <laughs> except I met Mike. Um, yeah, and, that makes it all um, worth it. Really. So um, I'm looking through the yellow pages for design firms to call up the interview with and lo and behold there's unimark you know there's an office nearby that had just been opened and i was like oh i've you know i've read about this i can you know i called them up and zoomed down there for an interview and uh it was perfect timing um we've benefited from fortuitous timing on several times in our career i'm getting that yeah yeah just good fortune and um, 
the design director of this small office of Unimark, and they had offices. The main one was Chicago um, and and New York with Massimo Vignelli, but they had a number of others, and they were opening offices around. Um, the design director of ours had taught at University of Illinois and um, thought maybe if they he hired a junior designer, he could kind of continue doing some teaching. Uh-huh. Um and so I, you know, interviewed just as he was looking for a junior designer. Uh, and it turned out he was way too busy to ever, you know, do any of that. But um, I worked with some really great people at Unimark. Um, it was a really close-knit group of, you know, some really exceptional designers. Did you have the ability to be multidisciplinary there i mean it seems like unimark is like the perfect i mean you even said you benefited from sort of fortuitous timing that seems like the perfect job for somebody who's interested in all these different facets of design were you able to actually do that or sort of how did the structure like you know was it structured sort of discipline based or can you just talk about that a little bit um yeah uh, actually the two designers i worked the most closely with uh were interior and exhibition designers, signage. And we did a lot of signage um, at Unimark. And they also did some major corporate identity offices. Our our Detroit office was opened on a massive contract with Ford Motor Company to do Uh their corporate identity program. Um, And fortunately, the, the main designers were so busy doing the big Ford project that these other interesting projects that came along kind of fell to me <laughs> in some cases. Um, and um, and I worked with these two designers that were more 3D and interdisciplinary. Uh, and, and one of the projects, the most interesting one we worked on was a... Um, uh, a project for Frontier Airlines to design a ticket counter system for them mm. um, that, you know, was modular and could be, they, they um, had um, uh, ticket counters in lots of regional Western airports. This is a different Frontier Airlines, you know, same name, but different company. And, um, and so this idea of a, a, a modular system that you could just, you know, send out on the planes and put up on these, you know, knotty pine paneling and <laughs> Wrangell, Colorado's airport. And we did do a prototype there. Um, uh, we we worked on on projects like that together. Also, um, and so um, again, they were so busy doing the core of the project. Part of the concept of the the system was these. It was based on a four-foot module, four-foot square module, um, to show how we could do promotional posters that would be changed periodically. Uh-huh. And so they fell to me and mm-hmm. um, because it was like the least, you know, sort of uh, revenue-generating element <laughs> of the project. And yeah. and it was actually my first printed pieces was, were, oh, were wow. posters for these ticket counter prototypes. Um, and this is what's this is kind of a fun thing. I got my first crit um, on those posters by Massimo Vignelli, who was the head of all graphic design for the Unimark offices, and he would regularly regularly critique um, right. work done in all the offices. Um, and 
It was relayed to me by our design director that Massimo's critique was they were too contrived. <laughs> we're setting the theme for our many years relationship. Yeah, we'll come back to that because I have other questions about that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um. But, um, but it was, you know, it was, uh, a, you know, very exciting. Unimark was a very exciting place to be. And, um, and these designers were had great expertise, you know, so I was just a sponge. It was like going to graduate school and I, you know, hovered over their work and two Swiss, actual Swiss designers, Harry Bowler and Peter Teutner, um, spent several weeks in our office. They were loaned to us from the Chicago office uh, to work on the Ford corporate identity manuals. And, you know, that's, I really learned the grid system from those guys. It was, you know, they were very generous. And our office had a bookshelf of the Swiss Bibles, which were not available in bookstores at that point. You know, Mueller Brockman, Emil Ruder, Evan Hoffman, Carl Gerstner. And I copied (laughs) every page of those books after hours on the photocopier. Um, And uh, I still have those in, in binders. I love that. So, okay. So tell me, tell me how you go from that. And I love that you said that, that was like a graduate school experience. Cause as you were talking about, I was thinking the same thing, like, you know, this, this feels like a sort of, you know, uh, a sort of professional graduate school, but tell me, tell me why at age 25, you think I'm going to start teaching. Uh, what was, what was interesting to you about taking that Cranbrook position? Um, you know, so, so young in your, your career? Well, I, first of all, I was pretty sure that I didn't ever want to teach. Um, I was a a crafts counselor in uh, summer camp during college. (laughs) And, you know, I really was, I I concluded at the end of that, it's like, I don't want to teach this stuff. I want to do it. And um, I want to make it myself. And, you know, I had a very narrow idea of what teaching could be, <laughs> clearly from that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this job at Cranbrook, the position really literally fell into our laps. It was nothing we sought. And um, we had not ever discussed being teachers at that point. And hence our, you know, initial reaction, like, oh, that's that's. kind of odd you know we just kind of laughed it off for the first few hours until we started talking about it later that evening um you know one thing though it occurs to me we were at the aspen conference and that's 1971 and Mm -hmm. as i recall that was the sum that was the conference that was chaired by richard farson the new president of cal arts and cal arts was brand new the first cal arts and he presented this idea of an alternative approach to design education. Um, And they had just had their first year of classes and they had recruited really high level faculty. Um, And um, we were kind of, you know, we were inspired by this idea um, that CalArts was sort of projecting of what design education could be. And the ironic thing is that fell apart after a couple of years. Um, 
And, uh, but we, but in a way, the, the kind of fallout of that was that we embraced a lot of those ideas when we got to Denver. I mean, what, what were some of those ideas or like, what, what did, why was that conversation, why was that sort of presentation so transformational for you? Well, I'm trying to think exactly what it was. It was slightly interdisciplinary, but not, yeah, it was basically interdisciplinary. It was very counterculture. You know, it was, um, about um, embracing the idea of community, I think, and and, and um, our our users, our audiences, um, was very idealistic. Um, you know, Sheila DeBrefville was one of the was the right. I think the main graphic design person there at that point peter de breville in architecture Vic, victor papanak for industrial mm-hmm. design which and all of those people lasted very a very short time there i don't really know what happened to um so that that the, that vision didn't go forward but um yeah it was it was a kind of a power to the people <laughs> approach in design which yeah. led to our interest in um you know, communicating uh the benefits of good design to the public and how to embrace and bring better design into their lives can you talk about sort of like graphic design culture and study at cranbrook when you got there then uh i talked to mike a little bit about this and i i've previously talked to Andrew Blauvelt about this. Um, you know, the design program historically was very focused on industrial design with the influence of, of the Eames. And there's there's very little documentation about kind of graphic design. I'm, I'm putting graphic design in quotes right now. Work before you got there, I think of Stephen Fickram. Stephen? Right. Yeah, Stephen Fickram is sort of like the canonical pre-McCoy's Cranbrook graphic designer. Um what was what was sort of how was graphic design seen or or how did that sort of fit into the design program when you got there or did it at all? It was very much a afterthought. And really we had as far to my knowledge, there are only two graduates um pre-1971 in graphic design that then went into the field, and that's Steve Frickholm and then um his Good, good buddy, colleague, um, when he was at Cranbrook, John Barry, who oh, then yeah. um, was um, spent the first part of his career in architectural signage, a really large uh, architecture firm in Detroit, and then moved to Herman Miller. Um, and so those were, I, I, it was just because two students showed up wanting to um, go into graphic design, why they, you know, added that element to the department. Before we came, the department had kind of devolved into two part-time teachers that were, their salaries were paid by General Motors. (laughs) That was maybe a four-year period. And um, the, the, the main teacher who was supposed to be there maybe three days a week was um, the head of education and recruiting at General Motors Tech Center for products, for cars. Mm-hmm. And we actually found a, a contract or a letter of agreement in the files that he left behind that stated what some percentage of 
industrial uh, pro uh, projects, student projects at, in the design department were supposed to have four wheels on them. Oh, wow. And, and that GM was looking to Cranbrook as an alternative source of new designers to Art Center. Um, I mean, it explicitly stated that. Wow. So, and so they were largely funding the, the department in those years. That's interesting. And, the and the head of architectural signage and corporate identity at the tech center, Homer Mitchell, I believe was his name, um, spent one evening a week in the design department. So that was the teaching that Steve Frickholm and John Barry got in grad school. And then, so was it important for you to sort of build out this graphic design side of the of the design program i mean i think the the narrative is and i'm maybe asking you to correct this or elaborate on it is that you 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 and mike together ran to the department and he sort of focused on industrial design you focused on on graphic design uh but there was a lot of conversation and sort of you know moving between both sides of those how, how did you sort of develop a graphic, that graphic design was part of this program? Or how did you kind of think about that? Well, I think the vice president that um, asked us to interview and made the decision to offer us the position, she her vision of the department was that it should be truly interdisciplinary and it mm. should include um, graphic design and product design and, and other areas, exhibitions and interiors right. too, if possible. So it had something, I think we got some, some mandate from her. Um, but, you know, of course, Mike's and my interests were very much, you know, split between graphic design or communications design and three-dimensional design. Um, so it was, it was, um, kind of a natural thing to mm -hmm. build a graphic design program. And in fact, because we were hired during the summer, that first incoming group of new students um, had already been admitted. Right. And um, wow. at least half of them were, you know, um, were coming for graphic design. So it was a natural okay. thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I can say that, a lot of the interdisciplinary nature of the communications uh, between students, the sharing of, of resources, you know, readings, theories, um, had to do with proximity. <laughs> we all, we mix them up in the studio, you know, they... Uh they you know so you had an industrial designer sitting next adjacent to a graphic designer and looking at each other's books and watching mm -hmm. each other's work um and there, uh so a lot of the the actual cross fertilization happened just through proximity i have a uh perhaps weird question um i'm 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 really interested you know this this the fact that you're you know you're in your mid 20s you did not want to teach you thought you didn't want to teach um you are now co-running a department in a school that famously has no classes and no grades and right. no assignments um Tell me about those first couple of years. Like, how did you figure out what to do or like what your role was in yeah. that system when you're still even like figuring out what graphic design is in some, in some ways? 
How can, sure. can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> For sure. Um, first of all, um, I, I, I want, there's a point I'd like to make um, about the fact that we had gone to a fairly rudimentary design program. You know, we had one really good faculty person. There was hardly a curriculum. It was just, you know, you took a studio course every semester. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, we had to invent teaching for ourselves. And I've observed through the years that that a lot of teachers, a lot of faculty that went had really solid and rigorous undergraduate um, educations in design tend to teach as they were taught. And it's sometimes sometimes they actually just use the same project (laughs) students. (laughs) <laughs> and so I think in a way, uh, although it would seem as a liability that our, our undergraduate experience wasn't so hot, um, actually it, it was um, a catalyst to inventing something <laughs> for ourselves. Um, and so, yeah, so when we began, you know, our, our experience with design was mostly professional practice. And so the first year or two, maybe we were just teaching in a very pragmatic way. Um, and for me, of course, it was based on my um, uh, conviction of, of modernist <laughs> graphic right. design with right. modernism uh, and, and a functionalist ethic. Um, but, you know, after a year or so, between the students and my work too, as we kind of had that down. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. We the, we've explored the grid system and we're very good at it, and um, you know we're we had a good rational, you know, logical, functionalist approach. But being in an art school, there's this you know um, uh, mandate for. Um, exploration, innovation, you know, um, uh, Mm -hmm. moving forward. So, you know, it was kind of in the atmosphere for one thing, but just personally too, it's like, well, what more is there? There must be more. Um, Where can we go from here? And so, you know, um, in the projects that, and I assigned more projects in graphic design, especially early on than Mike did. And, you know, the project cycle in 3D is longer and it's just more complex, you know, to design a chair or, you know, a product than it is to design a poster. Um, and so we had, I, I, you know, in those first years, sort of invented a whole range of projects that kind of, you know, became the core of my teaching. And each one was sort of focused on maybe developing a little different area of expertise in um, both form and, and method. Um, and one of the things I love about teaching, and Mike, Mike already mentioned this, um, the teacher learns the most, right, for right, sure. Right. And an, another thing I love is the opportunity for iteration. Um, you know, so I would, you know, assign a, a, a new project one year, and then the next year it's like, well, okay, I got that. I got the results 
last year from that laboratory experiment in that in that um, project and and you know here are some opportunities to you know take it in a little different direction or, or push it a little further um, yeah. and or add another layer of of challenge to it and so I love that about teaching you know, yeah it's, yeah you, me too <laughs> I mean that's why I that's why I that's why I teach too I completely get that um can can you tell me more about this sort of like after a couple of years feeling like, well, we know how to do this and this sort of impulse to kind of push things forward. And and with the fact that there being no classes, how, how can you talk about sort of like how much you were sort of pushing things forward and both like in work you were doing sort of professionally and sort of like outside of like teaching and then students' interests? Like how did those start to kind of develop the you know the interest in semiotics the interest in meaning how did that how 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 were sort of the the groups organized so those ideas could start to bubble up yeah that's a good question um let's see well first of all you know at at cranbrook they do call us artists designers architects and residents and the idea um that we're supposed to be um, pursuing our own work at least um, about half time, teaching half time, and given a studio adjacent to the students' studios, you know, so that we were working ourselves, you know, in our own design. Um, and um, right away at Cranbrook, I well, actually, it's in our first contract, we were supposed to design the the next school academic catalog um, (laughs) our first year's work and salary which by the way was our contract was for eleven thousand (laughs) dollars wow for for both of you combined we got yeah for two people um we and and then this this sort of fiction that that um you know we were each half time because of course you know it's a very and you know oh um, wow enveloping experience so we were each working you know at full tilt Um, but I I immediately started you know with that catalog and then um, uh, design materials um, for the museum especially um, Mm -hmm. the the art museum posters catalogs invitations etc I was I was um, very active in my own graphic design so and the students were watching my work. I was watching their work. You know, it's just this kind of um, soup of influence between, you know, this, this, all of us. The, the reason I asked that question is because this sort of, um, you know, that, that quote that we opened with about, you know, the, the Cranbrook was designed to challenge the status quo and was meant to be polemical it seems like that sort of thing can only happen in a program like Cranbrook where there is this sort of self-generation of work where it isn't just assignment, assignment, assignment and class, class, class and grade, grade, grade. Um, and I'm wondering if you sort of knew that that was happening as it was happening, you know, that these these new ideas were being brought in that weren't being talked about everywhere else, that this was sort of challenging what we thought of. What was it like in that moment? Were you aware that this was a, a provocation of some sort? Um, well, we've always, I think from the beginning, felt that um, the sort of central goal for each student was to find their own voice mm-hmm. um, in design. 
Um, but also, I've always, you know, probably going back to my Unimark time, been very convinced that design um, needed to move forward, you know, needed to mature, that we were, that that all the design fields are, are very young, and especially graphic design, and needed to professionalize, um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. become, um, you know, more mature, more fully developed. Um, and, and also at Cranbrook, our original, you know, we, we, our student body was what, who applied. (laughs) One of the challenges at at Cranbrook was to, um, communicate the, what the department's about and attract a better level of student. You know, the first students that were there, they just came in over the transom. Um, I don't even know how they found out about Cranbrook. Um, and so uh, doing, um, you know, posters and publishing about um, the design program was really an important thing, especially yeah, in the first yeah. years. Um, so that we had, we, we then gradually began to get, you know, a higher level of applicants. And, and I think, let's see, Meredith must have arrived after three or four years into it. She was time. early, I think, yeah. And very early. And also Patrick Whitney. Yep. Um, and uh, they were there together. And at, that was about the, the point where we began to get the kind of student we wanted, you know. That, right, right. We felt, you know, was going to be able to respond to what we were envisioning for, for the program. Um, and and as Mike mentioned, um, that um, the whole focus on public information about design, problem solving, and the man-made environment being one of the first examples and the big biggest first one, um, uh, that idea of public information was became a real important focus for us. And in a way, that fit with the modernist period still because it was information design. Right. Right. I mean, what's uh, what I'm curious about, I guess, or or what you said in there that was really interesting to me is this desire to advance the profession, advance graphic design professionally to professionalize. And then there's also interest in students sort of uh, developing their own voices, their own critical practices. And I think at a surface level, it would be very easy to see those two things as in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this goes back to sort of that that sort of thing you said earlier about being inside of an art school uh, and this, this sort of idea of, you know, responding to prompts versus, and Mike and I talked about this, this too, responding to prompts versus sort of self-generation. How do you see those as in service of each other, as, you know, sort of developing voice and point of view and individuality and professionalizing at large. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there was, I guess maybe that kind of touches on the sort of, uh, sort of emerging little, um, not exactly a conflict, but a divergence away from modernism, Mm -hmm. which, you know, was supposed to, your forms were supposed to be uh, functional, minimal, neutral, universal, um, where, you know, being, and particularly being in an art school, um, and then also, um, you know, working closely with Danielle Leviskin, you know, this idea of, of critical design, um, your personal voice, um, your own vision, um, 
that was seen to be in conflict with with a modernist yeah, you know right. view of design but um and in a way that's sort of where you know um massimo vignelli was someone told us he he, he say, said at a conference that uh, cranbrook was the most dangerous design school in america i was i was gonna bring that up that was the next <laughs> yeah. thing i was gonna say <laughs> so, you know a good modernist sort of felt like we were ruining design yeah but um, but to me, it's an enrichment of design, you know, it, it's a, and, a, and a, a skilled designer, a mature designer knows how to balance, you know, mm-hmm. functionalism mm-hmm. and solving real problems with, at the same time, you know, um, their own critical vision, um, their own maybe eccentric vision, um, yeah. it's an enrichment, it's not a conflict. Maybe working with graduate students, um, you know, it was a little bit different, but did you have thoughts on sort of students developing these sort of like, you know, personal voices, critical practices with the balance of also thinking about what would happen after and jobs and, you know, saying, you know, sort of the disciplinary definitions of this. And the the reason I asked you that is as you were saying that, I was thinking about, I interviewed Elliot Earls, your like kind of second successor, I guess, uh, Mm -hmm. and former student. And he told me this really beautiful story about how he was doing these like performance pieces and the students were not really getting it and that you sat with him and said like if this is what you want to do like do it like this like this counts too how did you sort of like think about that you know this uh, I don't mean to single out that example specifically but you know that kind of thing which does not seem like something that would be seen in a graphic design portfolio encouraging that while also thinking about defining graphic design well first of all I have to say i where at the beginning I started out teaching, thinking I knew what design was, right? <laughs> you know, that Unimark vision of modernism. Um, form follows function, you know, minimalist form, et cetera. And I went from there to becoming more and more um, permissive, um, basic mm. there. Um, I, but that's... That's I'm just kind of um, overstating the case there, but but I've through the years um, it's I I kind of learned to be more um, I think open and yeah. to yeah. you know students um, sometimes very kind of accidental impulses even, but you know to to new possibilities. Um, and, uh, you know, I've become more of a coach than mm, a teacher, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. especially because we were getting more and more mature and more and more talented students as the years went by. It, it seemed like it took less and less, you know, kind of fewer rules. <laughs> and, um, and right. to, you know, we, we wanted to catalyze their work rather than direct it. But one thing I would like to mention is that, you know, from the beginning, I had um, a, a conviction that there were not enough books in design. We didn't have enough written about design. And um, at the first year, I started the bibliography, um, uh, right. a department bibliography. And I've always 
loved reading and, and books anyway. We had a wonderful librarian at that point um, who uh, was very concerned that no one had ordered any books in design for years. But, mm. but, we, but the library had an incredible collection from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Right. Um, so she was willing to order anything I wanted. And the school actually paid for me to go to New York and go to used bookstores um, in Manhattan. And, and I bought up all the books that hadn't been bought in the previous right. 10 or 15 years. Um, and the and every year I updated the bibliography and hand first that was in the package of materials we, we gave to the students every Got every it. fall, first thing. Yeah. Um, and um, I initiated the reading project um, to sort of at first just to get them reading, but then after that it became just part of the program. Um, uh, I asked each student to every semester to at the end of the semester to um, write a paper, um, sort of a book review of three books mm. that they mm. had read during the semester. Pick pick the three that were most influential or maybe related to each other and write something about this. Um, and we made that available to everybody. You know, we copied right. them throughout right. the department. And then also as part of that end of the semester review, to bring three um uh, note cards with um, each one of uh, a vocabulary term, uh, you know, uh, that they had encountered during the semester, you know, either a new word or a new definition of a term um, that was kind of indicative of some of the ideas that they were encountering that semester. And then I compiled that into this ongoing vocabulary list. And that started from um, a young woman, Japanese student we had. Um, she was an interior design student. Um, mm. she, would, she started in the fall keeping her own vocabulary list because even though she spoke pretty good, you know, oh. uh, textbook English, she was finding that there are all these specialized right. Right. uses of, of words that had design meanings that were different than what you found in the dictionary. Well, that's and, a great idea. Yeah. And it occurred to me, well, of course, you know, um, the way we use words is very indicative of what we're thinking. So that was at first, you know, I felt like, we needed to catalyze reading and writing. But then there was a turning point, <laughs> very much so. Um, and that was, you know, in the early to mid 80s. This Jeff was my next question. Yeah. <laughs> um, if we're at the, in the, in the late 70s, we got very good at form uh, at Cranbrook. And, you know, it was, you know, Label, you know, postmodernist, new wave, whatever, and uh, and then um, a couple of classes of students, graphic design students, got really kind of itchy or antsy to find theory. What right. what what explains all this? And um, at first, it was kind of random and. Um, um, you know, uh, we had been reading design history for a while by this point. That was another mm -hmm. thing in the mid seventies. Maybe that's where students really started reading was reading design oh, history. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But then, but then this like search for theory began, and um, and I think it was really 
there were there were some interesting you know things that came up i've been encouraging and you know people to look at semiotics for a while um um, but then in i think it was really jeff Keaty's class where you know they really discovered literary criticism and reconstruction and um and you know post-structuralism as as really an um a fertile area for exploration for understanding communications and um and then that just that just took off how did that change the program because i think like in many ways that is the legacy of your your tenure there is this this sort of encouraging this introduction and this fostering of theory semiotics literary criticism structuralism etc and and that that didn't just blow up at cranbrook but that blew up in a lot of places, you know, uh, you know, Emma Gray was doing stuff with it. I studied mm-hmm. under Ellen Lupton and she and Abbott were kind of, you know, interested in these ideas. Yes. Um, how did that sort of change what you were doing in the program? Did, did people start coming to the program because of these ideas? Can you just talk a little bit about sort of the, the, the aftermath of that? Well, I, I have a feeling that, that we were fortunate fortunate enough to have Andrew Blaufeld apply because of uh-huh. that work for sure. He'd already um, uh, had, he, you know, he had, I believe he had a double major at Heron School of Art in undergrad. And so, and he had photography um, and actually at Cranbrook, the photo department was the first to start looking at um, post-structuralism and I remember Roland Barth's name came up and they had some really um, important um, visiting lecturers. This sort of blew up not just at Cranbrook, but in design at large. And I yeah. mean, this then started, you know, these the, the legibility war, like all of this stuff sort of That's comes right. out of these theory right. readings. Yeah. And um, also, you know, keep in mind that um, industrial design and Mike and and, um, a couple of his colleagues um, around the country were looking at um, semantics, especially out of semiotics um, and product design. So that was kind of also um, feeding into this. Um, the, The challenge was to translate these ideas about Meaning, uh, communications, right. um, sender, receiver, how people construct meaning. How do you, what does that mean for graphic design? Um, how, how does it find its way into form? Um, and um, I think Jeff Keaty said, I kept asking in crits, what does this look like? <laughs> right, right. And, and, and it did begin to affect form, you know? And um, one thing, um, I always kind of, it's a sort of a, a way to characterize this is that uh, in the previous stage, the, the postmodern um, new wave, we were, students started working with layers of form, you know, yes. very complex form. One of the results of these ideas and communications theory was then the students began to work with layers of meaning. And so, you know, the layers of form, you know, carried content, um, and um, and it and became a, a way of communicating layers of meaning. Some of which was personal, and some of which was 
um, you know, directed towards function and right. communicating the message. I remember in the in the '90s, Rick Pointer interviewed you about about you know the work at Cranbrook, and you said something similar. And basically, you were sort of like complaining that everyone thinks of Cranbrook as, as work as aesthetically loud and busy and layered. And you're like, I'm I'm actually interested in the complexity of meaning. I don't care that much about the layers of form. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I actually I do love the layers of form right, right. At, at times, um, and and I have to say I do love form, <laughs> and I love fine typography, and I'm not ready to, um, you know, give any of that up. But I I want to have I want to have it all. It can all it can all be there. This is not an either or thing, and every piece right. is and has different proportions of these elements. Right. And I think the I think the realizing that this isn't either or is what made you as leading, you know, co-leading that department able to actually sort of question these things. Like that's the generous perspective here is not thinking about it as either or. What do you think happened to those conversations? Um, you know, the, they were really busy for a for a second, you know, everybody was really interested in these and they sort of died down. And as somebody who was, you know, not part of those conversations, was too young for those conversations, whenever I go back and read things that were written at that time, I I still find so much relevance to the way design is talked about today, but it seems like that sort of intensity is gone. Do you have thoughts on why that is? Well, I think it got absorbed, you know, into Mm. our process, you know, it, Mm. it it's it's there, but um, we're not in the exploration stage anymore. Where uh, the excitement of discovery it's it's part of our methodology now, even if it's not often um, articulated in a really formal way. But you know, you can well. First of all, the NASAD standards it's right. um, it's incorporated into undergraduate curricular standards, um, and even you know, um, less um, theoretical or sophisticated graphic design faculty, I think, are are integrating some of these ideas, semiotics and post-structuralism, especially into their teaching. Maybe they're not even aware of it, but it's part of the culture now. I don't know if you heard me ask, tell Mike this. I reached out to a bunch of your former students yeah. to ask them what questions they want to hear you talk about. Yeah. And, and this relates to um, to something that Mr. Keedy asked, and then Martin Vineski asked a very similar question. Um, Keedy basically says, when you started designing, it was kind of commercial artists that then grew into graphic design and branched into cultural and social practice to a point that design thinking has become become cliche. Did you imagine that design would become so ubiquitous? And then Martin asked a similar question about sort of um, your perspective on, on how design has changed since then, like sort of the the evolution of design. What do you, uh, what's your perspective on that? Well, it definitely, the, you know, design and design thinking have certainly been um, kind of become a buzzword, become um, seen as some sort of like um, a desirable value, you know, and, and, and at the same time devalued um, in its kind of um, right. overuse or naive use in, in times. Um, but um I think that design has matured a lot. I mean, certainly since, you know, I started 
um, you know, as a designer and, and, and we moved through the 70s. Um, design really did mature a lot in the 70s and 80s. Um, industrial designers especially um, used to just always lament, we need, you know, to have business understand the value of <laughs> right. You know, I think we've kind of gotten past that point. Yes, now people pretty much understand you have to have it. Um, and, and of course, and then the, there are these two sort of, uh, in a way, opposing directions that have happened. Um, on one hand, everyone's a designer. All you need is the software, right? Um, right. And, uh, you know, and um, every everybody has their favorite font, you know, and, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Um, but on the other hand, design process and, and the technology has become incredibly more complex. And, um, you know, so it takes... Um, a higher level of design practice to, to um, you know, solve, you know, to, to complete a project. And in many cases, you know, we have sound and motion and interactivity added to it. And, and um, you know, the media possibilities are constantly expanding. So theory is much more, research and theory is much more um, crucial these days to completing a project successfully. So on right. one hand, it takes more expertise. On one hand, we have also, it takes less expertise and all you need is software. <laughs> Andrew Blauvelt had a very good question that I, I don't know how to work into the flow of this conversation. So I'm just going to ask it to you now. He <laughs> says, um, a lesser known Cranbrook story is the connections to the Netherlands in the 1980s. This connection <laughs> was the first contact with contemporary Dutch design in the United States that affected both graphic and product design. And he was curious to hear you talk more about those connections and the influence of, of sort of Dutch design in, in, in the Netherlands? Well, um, we started going to the Netherlands. Let's see. Well, we had a sabbatical there in 82, 83. I think about 1980, we, we had our first trip there because we, um, Mike mentioned um, a, a client and big supporter of the design program was the vice president of design at Herman Miller, Bob right. Blake. And at that point, he had left Herman Miller and became the vice, the equivalent of the vice president of design for Philips, the, which at that point was a huge electronics company in, based in the Netherlands. And so when we had a sabbatical, he offered us um, a design residency um, in, in their huge corporate design studios. Um, and with no um, obligation to do anything for Phillips, you know, just to be there as, you know, catalysts, you know, give some presentations some critiques, but we were free to come and go. And so um, I, you know, the first trip to, to Holland, I realized, wow, there's, there is some amazing design, graphic design going on here that is somewhat related to what we're doing um, in the late 70s, circa 1980, um, new wave, postmodernism, but but it's different. And so I took that time um, while we were, we spent a winter in Holland mm-hmm. to zoom around this little country, you can <laughs> go from city to city in half an hour um, and visit every interesting designer. And there were 
many. Um, and, um, you know, see their work, collect their work, um, and um, try to understand where this was coming from. And the thing that, that was so amazing is that they had, some of the older designers knew, you know, the original modernists in the early 20th right. century and Holland, P.H. Svart, you know, that um, right. they were, you know, a lot of, some of them lived to ripe old ages and were still going to professional meetings and having debates, you know, and so there was a direct, the, the what we looked at and thought of as postmodern work in Holland actually had a direct lineage back to their roots in the early 20th century. And it was very Dutch, you know, it was, a, it was very authentically Dutch um, right. and reflected um, their convictions and they, and, and also modern art um, was very vital in Holland all through these years. So, and, and a lot of the graphic design was closely related to, to modern art practice also. So, whereas in the U S you know, I don't know. We sometimes it seemed like we were just kind of ODing on this, you know, formal <laughs> a banquet of form um, or buffet of form. You know, the Dutch seemed to have to be more grounded, and they, you know, their practice uh. was was coming more out of a, a, a cultural tradition. So I wrote an article for ID Magazine on on the on Dutch graphic design. Um, right. And I. I actually still in my storeroom have an amazing collection of uh -huh. graphic design. Um, they were very generous. Every one of them, you know, when I visit would pull out all these yeah, that's great. posters and I'd go home with them. Um, and we had a traveling exhibition, our AIGA chapter. Um, I think it went to, I don't know, more than 10 AIGA chapters around the country of Dutch graphic design. And so, it was, um, I think they just served as a, a useful role model for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, that, yeah, that's so interesting. I remember I had forgotten about that ID piece, which I had found a long time ago. And then I always think of um, Michael Rock wrote that article in, in the 90s, also called Mad Dutch Disease, where he talks to you <laughs> in it, I think, um, about some of that. But that's really the only sort of widely available information about sort of your connection to that. So it was nice to hear that that story a little bit. I'm interested in what you're thinking about now. What's, um, you know, you, we started this conversation talking about how design, you know, you sort of feel like you're not sure what it is anymore, kind of what's going on. What's, what's on your mind or what's interesting to you right now? Well, the kind of ironic thing is after years of breaking all these rules of modernism and information design, since we, since 2000, Three, when um, we completed our time at IIT and became full-time residents of um, of um, Colorado, I've kind of fallen, uh, you know, into an accidental uh, specialization of information design. Um, do you know how? Do you know how many like Cranbrook fans are listening to this and just feel so heartbroken now all of a sudden? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's so it's about being in in this place. Yeah. So I've been designing um, trail maps um, 
For the Forest wow. Service and the Bureau of Land Management, our, our public lands, 80% of our county in the center of Colorado um, is public land. Okay. Um, and, um, and we have amazing trail systems. We have more 14,000-foot mountains than any other county mm-hmm. in the country, um, which are all public. And so I've been designing, you know, kiosks. Um, trail trailhead kiosks, um, trail maps, um, and um, also some historical material um, of, about our area. Just being in the place, you know, sort of resulted in this. And um, I love the land, and so it's sort of natural to. Yeah want to you know um interpret it in a graphic form i guess Uh, it's it really does come full circle i mean the trail map seems like a very unimark project you know (laughs) massimo would be proud (laughs) (laughs) you're right you know it's it's all about clarity you know because most many people are cartographically challenged you know Mm -hmm. they have trouble reading maps. And so it's using all those graphic methods to make them as clear and um, compelling as possible. I love that. I think that's a great way to wrap up. So I'm going to ask you the last question that I use to end all of these. I'm curious what you're reading right now, especially you mentioned you've always been a reader and loved loved books. What What's on your, uh, what's on your reading list right now? Well, you know, mostly I'm reading design history. I could mention a couple of books that I really particularly yeah. appreciate recently. Uh, one is um, Roger Remington's um, book on Will Burton's um, mm-hmm. scientific approach to information design, which I think is um, a really beautiful book. And then um, David Shields, one of our graduates. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Virginia Commonwealth University, um, just has a new book out on Rob Roy Kelly's American Wood Type Collection. And so, Kathy, thank you so much for doing this. I mentioned this to Mike also. This, I, I am a longtime fan. I, I've talked to so many of your former former students and just see your influence sort of all over the design field today and so to sort of hear some of the background and hear what you're thinking about now was was really a treat for me thank you so much for doing this my pleasure good questions this episode was recorded on december 14th 2022 our theme music is by andy borgasani we're on twitter and instagram at surface podcast you can support the show on patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratching the surface.fm thanks for listening